it was an iconic and became an amazingly famous Broadway musical, <clears throat> turned into a movie in 1971, and perhaps you've seen it, called Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, and in this particular wonderful film, it starts at the very beginning introducing us to some of the key characters. There's Tevya and his wife, Golda. And early on, they are attending, along with everyone else in the town, the wedding of their eldest daughter, Zeidel, who is going to be getting married to the tailor, Mazel Kamsoil, as the song goes. It's a, an amazing, amazing beginning. Here's this poor town celebrating one thing that brings them joy and excitement, one of the few things that they enjoy. And Tevye and his wife Golda began to sing this amazing ballad. It's a haunting tune. It's plaintive. Sunrise, sunset. With the wonderful words written by uh, Sheldon Harnick. It's about the passing of time, about kids growing up and going out. And no sensitive parent can hear those words and not be touched deeply. One of the things that moves me about this film is that the father has five daughters <laughs> and he slowly lets them go and that's not an easy thing. But I saw something that I never saw before in the chorus of this amazing song. It starts out in the verses, is this a little girl I carried? <clears throat> is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty, and how did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it yesterday when they were small? It's hard to say those words without trying to sing them. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. And then in the first chorus it says, swiftly flow the days. Seedlings turn overnight to sunflowers, blossoming even as we gaze. But then the second time the chorus is sung, it advances the whole concept. Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the years, one season following another, laden with happiness and tears. And that's what life is all about. <coughs> happiness in tears. Think about it. Life is filled with incredible contrasts. The ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the happiness and the tears. That's what you and I often face. And that's life in a fallen world. Well, I want us to see that that's not just life for those who are living in a small village in Russia long ago. That's life for us today in a fallen world, happiness and tears. And that's the way it was way back in Mark chapter 5. So let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to see this life filled with incredible contrast. We're actually going to look at something a little different today, not so much an outline as as much as it is a life map or a story map 
a storyboard that you might look at as you're producing some type of story or film. That's exactly what we find in Mark chapter 5. I want to begin reading with verse 21, some verses we introduced to you last week. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, and it's debatable exactly where this is, but most likely he's coming back now to the city of Capernaum, which was his adopted hometown. A large crowd gathered with him as he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And when we're introduced, first of all, to this difficulty that Jairus is experiencing in life, this, this sense of desperation. Now, it's important to remember that he is the arche in the synagogue, the Greek word that means chief, president. He's uh, more than just one of the teachers. He is the head of the synagogue. This particular word is used six times in the Greek New Testament. Five times it refers to this guy. In the book of Acts, we have some names like Crispus and Sosthenes, who are also, also the presidents in their synagogue. You see, each synagogue had a leader, and he was, because of his position, influential and also wealthy. But rank places no man beyond the reach of sorrow. And everyone feels pain. And this guy felt it. Terrible, horrific was his situation. A distressed father with a daughter on the, on the brink of death. If you go down in our text to verse 42, you'll find out that she was 12 years old, which is what Luke says when he tells the story in Luke chapter 8. But Luke adds another important point. This is his only daughter. She's not only young, but she's all he has. Think of the pain. We don't know for sure, but my best guess is they enjoyed probably 12 years of fairly normal life, of laughter and music in the home as this wonderful little girl grew up. She's just old enough now to realize that her, her situation is serious and life-threatening and right on the cusp of adolescence and soon to be a young woman and all the promise that life would have, she's right at that point. And she's about ready to die. A cloud comes over the home and there's no more laughter and there's no more music. There's just difficulty and desperation. Have you ever been there? <clears throat> life is filled with tears, and that's where this guy is. But there's hope. Hope, the idea of faith comes in, and faith brings expectation, and now we began to move up a little bit because with this, this hope, this man comes to Christ. Yes, he's desperate, and he's driven by his desperation to find Jesus Christ, but notice his faith. He, he came looking for Jesus, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly for his daughter, saying, if you touch her, she will be healed. 
And my friend, that's amazing faith. Where did his faith come from? Well, if he is the chief ruler of the synagogue, and if it happens to be the synagogue in Capernaum, when you go back to Mark chapter 1, that's where Jesus healed the man who was demon-possessed. And Jairus would have witnessed that. Or as it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 39, Jesus traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in all the synagogues and healing the demon-possessed. This ruler of the synagogue saw Jesus and heard Jesus, and he was moved by that. And so when his daughter was sick, he just had to find the Lord. And he came to Christ, probably over the opposition of many others in the synagogue, because the teachers of the synagogue are the ones who were opposing Christ. He came over opposition because he was driven by desperation and faith. And in the greatest crisis in his life, he comes to Jesus Christ. Now, many come to Christ at first, not out of some noble motive necessarily, but out of their own pain. We come not because of what we can do for Jesus, but for what Jesus can do for us. And although that may not be the highest motive, it's legitimate. And many of us have been driven to Christ, have we not? For selfish desires, and when we come to the Savior, that little bit of faith is fanned into a flame. And we find ourselves giving our hearts and our souls and our minds and our whole life to Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. So look at verse 24. So Jesus went with him. I love that. The willingness of Jesus to come to our aid is a marvel I don't think I'll ever get over. The compassion of Jesus for sinners who reject him. The mercy of Jesus for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them. What's the rest of it? They know not what they do. I can only imagine the hope that began to surge in his heart. He became buoyant and expectant. Yes, his daughter was still ill, but now there was optimism. And that's what faith produces. Faith in Jesus Christ produces an optimism that overcomes the gloom and misery of this world. And if your mindset is being determined by the six o'clock evening news, you are of all people most to be pitied. You're a doom and gloom person. You're a glasses half empty person. You're a downer. You're the people others avoid being around. Because the moment they say, how are you doing? They know they're in for a long monologue of all your faults, real and imagined. But hope is built on faith and develops optimism. And so we read in verse 24, large crowd pressed around him. But now with the faith and the expectation comes this idea of delay and frustration. And this is the story we looked at last week, remember? As Jesus goes along with the crowd and the crowd is pressing around Christ and it's, it's so tight that you can barely move and everyone's jostling for position and elbowing and pushing and shoving and Jairus is hopeful. Jesus stops because someone touched him. And he deals with this woman who had the hemorrhage for 12 years. Remember that story? 
The fact that Mark mentions that the woman had been suffering for 12 years and that the little girl was 12 years old has to be significant in some way. But I like what Ken Hughes said. Jesus slowed down like an ambulance in traffic. And when Jairus was so excited about maybe, just maybe, his daughter is going to be healed, now you've got this divine delay. And don't the divine delays of God irritate you? They do me. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Okay, let's wait a few days. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead. And what do Mary and Martha say, the sisters of the, of the brother who just died? If you had only been here, where were you? That's what they were saying. If you could hear the tonation of their voice. Where were you? Out of desperation and brokenness. You could have made a difference. And although the scriptures are silent, I think the feelings of, of Jairus at this point must have been just like you and me. Annoyed, confused, impatient. He was leaning on one foot and tapping the other and then the other like this and arms crossed and looking around. How come? What in the world is going on? Maybe Jesus was trying to teach him compassion. What he didn't know is that Jesus had designed this interruption, this delay, to encourage his faith. He didn't know that right at the beginning. But like, like the psalmist who cries out, how long, O Lord? I did a quick count. There's about 13 of those in the book of Psalms. How long, O Lord? Psalm 119, how long must your servant wait? Psalm 6, my soul is in anguish. How long? How long do I have to wait? in the midst of this delay. And some of you who've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and had the hope of things getting better, they've only gotten worse. And life's story has this downer to it called a delay. But true faith grows by testing. Jesus never promised you an easy life. And yet that's the way we interpret it. Real faith is something that Jesus wants to cultivate. And the way he cultivates real faith is to test it. And so if you love Jesus and your faith is genuine, praise God. But don't expect things to get easy. Now he was going to encourage his faith, although Jairus didn't understand it, didn't believe it, didn't realize it at that point. And then we go from bad to worse. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking with a woman, death ensues. Some people from the house of Jairus came and said to the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And now you talk about a vision dashed and hope crushed. You come to Jesus and things only get worse. Here's the real test. He thought the test was maybe the delay. Oh, no, no, no. This is the real test. Can Jesus raise someone 
from the dead? Sidney Sheldon said that life is like a novel. It's filled with suspense. You have no idea what's going to happen until you turn the next page. And I would add to that, it's like a plot in a story that has a twist and a downturn and conflict, and then somewhere in the middle, it only gets worse. Right? Now what? Here's the real test of faith. Can Jesus deal with death? And I have to believe at this point that Jairus might be just a little disappointed with Jesus. Because frankly, in our honest moments, we'll admit the same. I'm just a little disappointed. Because things aren't turning out like I thought they would. And here I am, now surrounded with the shadow of death and gloom. And all the hope that was once filling my heart seems to be emptied out. But look at verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. And now here's the exhortation for faith again. Here's an opportunity to rise above the difficulty. Here's an opportunity to believe Jesus instead of the world. By the way, the world always gets reality wrong. (laughs) The philosophers of this world who deny God always get it wrong. Do you understand that? Don't let your worldview be determined by human rationalism. Your daughter is dead. Yeah, Jesus is a good teacher, but he's no use to you now. Stop bothering him. There's nothing he can do. That's what the world says. There is no life to come. There is no inspired word of God. Stop following religion. Stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying. It's too late. And you and I have the opportunity to ignore the words of the world and to obey the commands of Christ. By the way, there are two commands. Don't be afraid and just believe. Actually, it's in the present tense. Just keep on believing. You were believing. Just keep on believing, Jairus. Trust me. And now Jairus has the opportunity to go one way or the other. Believe that I can do what I said I will do. Be like Abraham. Abraham, who when he was old, and his wife Sarah old as well, and far beyond the years of having a child, took hold of the promise and did not waver because of unbelief. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had said he would do, he could do. And that's why you go down and down into even the shadow of death, God is testing your faith. Do you really believe what I say? Are you really going to trust me? It's easy for us to read the story about this guy whose daughter was sick and was dying, and without us getting into the story, we say, hey, no problem, we know how it answers, but what about your problem? Are you going to believe Jesus to deal with your situation? 
Here's the test of faith. Keep your eye on the promise of God. It's all that Jairus had. The world said it's too late. Don't bother Jesus. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Keep believing. All he had was the word of God. And that's all you and I have. And God's word speaks into our sorrow. And God's word speaks into our pain. And faith is now really challenged. Will we believe the word of God or no? I thought Jesus could heal, but do I believe he can raise someone from the dead? It's a little more difficult. The Bible tells us in verse 37, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. That is, the whole crowd now, Jesus said, stop following me. Only a select group from goes, can go with me. So Jairus went with him, the father, and Peter, James, and John. By the way, you have to remember that Peter is the one who discipled John Mark. He's the one who led John Mark to Christ. The gospel written by John Mark is basically the preaching of Peter. John Mark did not witness a lot of these things himself, but he sat down and Peter, his dear friend and mentor, told him the stories and Mark wrote it down and that's our gospel. And so now Peter is gonna be an eyewitness to everything that takes place. Look at verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. I mean, the death had only happened a short time before, but most likely by this time, the professional mourners had already been engaged. You say, professional mourners? Yeah. In that day, they had actually paid people to come and mourn. You know, it's like people who come to provide our funeral dinners. These would be people who would come to provide the weeping and the wailing. I guess maybe they were afraid that the relatives and family wouldn't cry enough, so they made sure people were there to cry. But not only did they cry, it was a wailing cry. They didn't have the internet, and they wanted people in town to know that death had visited this house, and so they wailed loudly, and sometimes they'd go outside, and they'd wail loudly, and they'd rent their clothes, they'd rip their clothes, and they'd pull out their hair. And for a period of time, they wouldn't wash, and some wouldn't eat, and they would wail. And when Jesus got there, the commotion had already started. So Jesus goes in, and he says to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And so now you have this idea of cultural opposition. Because the world laughs at our confidence in Christ. And the world scorns the Savior. And the world mocks. And when you say, I will follow Jesus, don't be surprised that this world is not a friend to grace to help you on to God. The world's an enemy, and they will ridicule. But when the world ridicules you, who do you side with? 
Oh, I, I know you're tempted not to say anything and to fit into the crowd. You're tempted to go along with the populace. But Jairus didn't. And I'm sure the temptation might have been strong. And family members there to woo him on, but he didn't listen. And this is one place where the church of Jesus Christ is really falling short. We are too intimidated by the culture around us, and we don't really believe the word of God. People have been laughing at Christ for so long, it's gotten to us, and we don't like being laughed at. But they've always mocked the Savior. And remember, in the end, Jesus wins. We know how the story ends. And reality is not just what you can see. Reality is what God told us does exist. And so I love the fact that there's faith now. As God intervenes, Jairus believes, and up we go again in this story. Now toward hope. Verse 40. They laughed at him, but he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother. The mother had stayed at home. That's where a mother ought to be with a sick child. The father went out to find help. Now they're united together, mother and father. And the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, five witnesses, go in with Jesus to where the child was. And he took her by the hand, and he said to her, and this is in Aramaic, which was probably Peter's natural language. Either that or it's the natural language of those that, that uh, Mark is writing to. And he says, Talitha, which means, the old translation was damsel, which really misses it. The NIV little girl's a little closer, but it literally means little lamb. It's a tender term. Little lamb, arise. Come, arise. It was the woman with the issue of blood who touched Jesus and was healed, and now it's Jesus touching this little girl. And she is alive. Life through Jesus Christ. That's the last circle. And that's where we end. Talk about ending on a high note. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. You know, frankly, I'm, I'm thrilled for the parents, but I feel a little bad for the little girl. Think about it. She just came back from paradise. It's take, like taking a 12-year-old girl out of a birthday party to go do homework. And she's going to have to die again. She's already gone through it once. It's appointed on the man wants to die, except for this little girl and a few others. Lazarus. So I, I kind of feel bad for her, but what an amazing miracle. She gets up, she begins to walk around again, and the people are completely astonished. Aren't we often astonished when God does something miraculous because we don't expect it? And faith is believing the impossible. Why weren't the others allowed to see what was going on? Well, they saw the little girl coming out alive. And I'm sure the story was twisted from the get-go. She must have been only sleeping then. Jesus said she was sleeping. He must have been right. But the fact that the mourners were there proves that she had really died because the mourners wouldn't show up unless death 
was a reality. No, she'd really died and come back from the dead, but I'm not surprised that people would say she's only sleeping because that's the same tune they sing when they talk about the resurrection of Christ. Apparently, he didn't die. He was only sleeping. And only a fool would believe something like that. Why didn't Jesus just broadcast it around? Because he says in the very last verse, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And oh, by the way, get something for the girl to eat. (laughs) Isn't that a great command? So human, so caring. Why can we not tell others about this? I think Ray Steadman is right. Jesus didn't want to broadcast it around so that he'd be invited to every funeral for the next five years. Because his point was not to heal every sick person and to raise from the dead every person who died, but to show that we ought to have a new perspective on sickness and death, and Jesus is king over these things. Sickness and death are intruders. It's not the way God intended it to be. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, you, my friend, will never die. You will live. And that's what this story teaches us. When she woke up, the first face she saw was Jesus. And the people were amazed. This story teaches us the wonderful reality of the Christian life, which is simply this. That which is impossible for man is clearly possible for God. There is nothing too hard for him He can do whatever he wants to do. And also this story is amazing. It's an amazing preview. It's like a trailer for a movie that gives you some of the highlights that are coming. Two things that this story teaches us about. Number one, it's a preview of the cross. You say, in what way? When the woman touched Jesus, who had the issue of blood, according to Leviticus chapter 5, Jesus became unclean. And when Jesus touched the dead little girl, took her by the hand, Jesus became unclean. According to the ceremonial law. And my friend, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He identified with you and me. He became sin for us. On the cross, Jesus became unclean. And God the Father turned his back on the Son. And that's why Christ cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus became unclean for us so we could become clean in him. That's the love of Christ. And secondly, this is a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he calls everybody out of the grave and says, arise. Those who die, their spirits go immediately to be with Jesus. The body is buried in the ground like a seed planted waiting for the harvest. And Jesus one day when he comes will say, arise, and every body of every believer will be joined to their souls, supernaturally changed, and we shall be changed. How do I know it? Jesus is king over death. He was king over the storm. He was king over the demons. He was king over disease, and he's king over 
death. And every person who puts their faith and trust in him will overcome as well. And that's why we have this rich story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, life is filled with ups and downs. And sometimes we're so discouraged we don't see that the next bubble is up. That you designed by faith for us to be lifted up out of our sorrow and out of our difficulty. Many of us here would long for a loved one to be healed of their sickness or long for a loved one who's close to the grave to be healed or long for those who have died to come back. But Lord, your plan is greater than that. In this fallen world, there will be tears. But our ultimate happiness rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ who killed death, who crushed death to death, and became unclean for us so that we might forever live with him. Encourage your people with this amazing truth. In Jesus' name, amen.